This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So go ahead, baby, wipe your tears. We both know that the end is near. Pistol and a watchful eye. We're doing God's work. Daddy told me selling moonshine all over seven counties. So go ahead, baby. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Rattlesnake Whiskey by the Shootouts. The Shootouts from Akron, Ohio, is our feature Ohio music artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of this podcast. We'll tell you all about them and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, have you ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time? Yes. I remember one time I was playing hide-and-seek with my sisters, and I was hiding behind the bathroom door, and my brother flung it open, and the door came flying back at me and ripped up my toe. It was like the toenail came off. It was it was horrible. I think we all probably have stories like that. I, You know, I'm thinking of like a couple of times when I've had an accident, thinking, gosh, if I hadn't gone to the store at that exact moment, then that idiot that ran the red light wouldn't have been there to hit me. But you know what? There are far, far worse examples of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And tonight's case is one of them. For this story, we're going back to November 2, 1987, in Preble County in southeast Ohio, about 35 miles from Dayton. Preble County is a rural farming community. The county seat is Eaton, population 8,500, home to the county fair and the annual Preble County Pork Festival. Doug Crow is wondering what's up with David Smelser an employee at his family's business. Smelser was a plumber's helper at Crowell Plumbing in downtown Eaton, owned by Doug's dad, Don Crowell. But he also helped Doug with his own stump removal business, and the two men were longtime friends. Smelser was supposed to meet Doug early Saturday morning to help pull some tree stumps out, but he didn't show up. Doug shrugged it off. He figured something must have come up. He'd hear all about it later. But then Monday morning came, and Smelser didn't show up for work. 
Missing one appointment could have an explanation. Skipping two jobs? Something was off. After the workday was over, Doug Crowell decided he'd better look in on Smelser. Just after 5 p.m., he steered his truck toward 2188 Consolidated Road. Smelser was 31 years old and small in stature, just 5 foot 4, but muscular. He wore his long brown hair and a ponytail. He lived in a small four-room cabin that sat more than 200 yards from Consolidated Road on an isolated stretch of road surrounded by wheat fields a couple of miles south of Eaton. The cabin has since been torn down, but it had been around for a very long time, having been built in the early 1800s. It was a simple one-story frame with unpainted siding and no phone. For the past three years, Smelzer had been renting it for $30 a month from Raymond Poos, a farmer who lived within sight of the house, across a wide field. Poos thought Smelzer was an ideal tenant, friendly, responsible. Oh, he might fall behind in his rent once in a while, but he always caught up without much prodding. Smelzer had visitors, often, but Poos had never seen anything wild going on. Those who knew Smelser thought of him as a modern-day Davy Crockett who tried to live off the land. He hunted rabbit, squirrel, and deer with his longbow, and he knew every fishing hole in the area. He tended a garden that grew from seeds he planted in a makeshift greenhouse. He made many furnishings in his cabin, and once made his own fur-lined rawhide jacket from animals he'd trapped. He didn't make a whole lot of money, but he didn't need a whole lot of money, just enough to pay his rent and the electric bill. He heated the cabin with a wood-powered stove, but he did have dreams of owning his own farm. Doug Crowell followed the long, gravel-covered farm lane that led to the cabin. It wound around to the back of the house, past a large pile of wood and a mattress hanging from a tree and marked with an X for target practice. And that's when Doug saw the parked vehicles. Two of them. One was Smelser's truck. He knew that old 64 Chevy pickup. But he knew the other vehicle, too. It was a car that belonged to Melinda Newcomb. Newcomb lived in the city, where she rented an apartment from the Crowell family. Doug had actually been looking for her that weekend to collect her rent. He hadn't found her either. But why was she in the cabin with David Smelser? Doug knew Melinda. Doug knew David. But he was pretty sure David and Melinda didn't know each other. There was something else strange. David's pit bull, Coco, was there, chained up outside the house. Smelser always turned him loose when he was home. That gave Doug pause. As Doug walked up the steps of the weather-beaten cabin, he noted that the back porch light and yard lights were on, though the sun hadn't set. He could hear a country radio station, Beaver 96.5, playing from inside the house. He walked up the steps and approached the kitchen window. He cupped his hands against the glass and peered inside. Then Doug turned on his heels and ran. 
he jumped in his truck and skirted down the drive and headed for the home of the nearest neighbor, a retired farmer named John Tucker. He was so distraught, Tucker had to help him place the call to the Preble County Sheriff, where he asked to send deputies and an ambulance. The ambulance wasn't necessary. Officers arrived and entered the cabin on Consolidated Road. It was locked. They had to bust open a door. It was immediately obvious this wasn't a fresh scene. The coroner would determine that those inside had been killed three days earlier. Nearby residents reported hearing shots Friday night, just after 11 p.m. Deputies found David Smelser, his body face up on the living room floor, shot once in the head. There were two people sprawled in the kitchen, just a few feet inside the door. Melinda Newcomb, shot twice in the head. And another man they learned was Donald Marker, who had been staying with Smelser, also shot twice in the head. There were no signs of a struggle, though there was another bullet hole in the kitchen window. Investigators couldn't tell if the shot came from inside or outside the house. Whatever happened, happened fast and clean. After studying the scene, investigators theorized that it may have been a professional hit, with David Smelser the main target. It's quite possible he'd been killed before the other two arrived, and that Newcomb and Marker had been shot as they entered the house, possibly interrupting the killer before he had the time to leave. The locked door suggests the killer locked it on his way out. A shotgun was found in the house, but it wasn't the weapon. Police were looking for a 9mm semi-automatic Luger. While investigators poured over the house, the landlord, Raymond Poos, sat outside telling reporters what a nice guy Smelser was. You can tell he wasn't planning on dying, Poos said. Look at all the wood he had there, he said, pointing to a pile near the shed. But there was at least one hint that somebody had it out for Smelser. A year earlier, someone had entered his cabin while he was gone and shot the place up, shattering the television and blowing a hole through the refrigerator with a shotgun. A few weeks later, someone stole the cow Smelser had been keeping in a barn on the property. Smelser never reported either incident, but Doug Crowell knew about them. He said his friend didn't call police because he didn't want to make trouble. Smelser and Donnie Marker were new friends, but increasingly good friends, and at a time when Marker really needed a friend. Marker was 28 years old and had only returned to Preble County a few months earlier. His parents, Leon and Catherine Marker, lived in Eaton. Marker had been living in Colorado, had a wife and three kids still out there, but he was wanted on a drunk driving charge and he left the state to avoid a court appearance. His mom picked him up at the Greyhound bus station, loaned him the family travel trailer to live in, and gave him cigarette money. He moved the trailer his mom had loaned him to the property that Smelser rented and kept it inside a barn, but he returned home every morning to have breakfast with his mom. When summer turned into fall and the temperatures dipped, Smelser invited Marker 
to sleep in the cabin rather than the cold trailer in the barn. Marker found work at a chicken processing plant. He'd hoped to make enough money to bring his family to Ohio to be with him. But the job only lasted a few weeks. His mom said her son was friendly and definitely not a fighter, but he did have a big weakness. He drank a lot and often wore sunglasses to hide the telltale eyes of marijuana use. On Friday night that Halloween weekend, Marker and Melinda Newcomb had been hanging out at the stable, a bar in Eaton on North Barron Street. Since Marker's driver's license had been revoked, Newcomb offered him a ride home. Melinda Newcomb was 24 years old. She lived on Main Street in Eaton. She had no roots in Preble County. She grew up a couple of counties away, but to be honest, I don't know which one. Some stories said she graduated in 1981 from Springboro High School. That would be in nearby Warren County. Others said she graduated from Hillsboro High School, which would be in Highland County. Either way, a year after her graduation, she moved to Eaton to take a job with the Preble County Board of Mental Retardation. She worked at a group home for mentally challenged adults at the corner of Beach and Summer Street near downtown. She made their meals and tended the house, staying with the 10 residents around the clock from Sunday through Wednesday and having Thursday through Saturday off. Newcomb liked to spend part of her time at the stable playing darts. She preferred to go play in the afternoon with a co-worker when no one else was around to watch, but she also liked to socialize there with her friends in the evening. She was a big girl, but she had recently lost 60 pounds. She was excited about her new look and her new life. A friend, Nancy Daly, said it was ironic that on the night Melinda died, she had probably never been happier in her life. After her death, her family found an application for Sinclair Community College. The Dayton Bay School had a satellite in Eaton. Her sister, Becca Newcomb, said her sister was witty, but often used her humor to mask her insecurities. She was always seeking approval, Sister Becca said, but she had so much love and caring to give, and the college application hinted at her dreams for the future. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Nobody knew if Newcomb and Marker knew each other before she offered him that ride. They might have just met that night. David Smelser, a 1974 graduate of Eaton High School, was laid to rest that Friday. His parents, John, a retired teacher, and Marion, who sold real estate, came from their homes in Bradenton, Florida. He was the fourth of seven sons and had a sister as well. Friends said he was easygoing, never a smart aleck, never the kind of guy who would talk bad about anyone. Others couldn't help but wonder about his isolated cabin and that chained pit bull outside. Could he have been dealing drugs? 
Nonsense, his friend said, and that pit bull was no guard dog. He was a lovable pet. And a member of a task force that was assembled to investigate the three murders said he didn't think drugs were involved either. The task force did, however, think Smelser knew his killer. $100 was missing from Smelser's pocket, where his dad had seen him slip it in after cashing his paycheck earlier in the day. But officials never thought the motive was robbery. A day after Smelser's funeral, Donnie Marker and Melinda Newcomb were buried. Marker was survived by his parents, a sister, two brothers, and of course his wife, Andrea, and their children, Donnie Jr., August, and Taya. Melinda Newcomb was survived by her parents, Jean and Charles, and two sisters. She was also missed at work. She was kind and compassionate to everyone, said Howard Curd, the county board superintendent. He said the ten residents who lived at the group home where Melinda spent her days had been told she died, but they were making extra efforts to keep them from seeing newspapers or TV reports, fearing the psychological effects it might have on them to know the violence she suffered. But three months after the murders, the fear in town was still fresh. A Dayton Daily News report said local residents were frightened because the killer hadn't been caught and because police would say very little about the case. It was unsettling that nobody seemed to know a motive. People who had never owned a gun in their lives now kept a loaded weapon in their homes. John Tucker, Smelser's neighbor, said... They figured it happened once, it could happen again. Five years after that, another news story suggested authorities knew more about what might have happened that night. The families of the victims had hired a private investigator in Greg Noble, a former Montgomery County assistant prosecutor, and he told reporters the evidence suggested there had been a party, an argument and a hothead with a gun. Well, more than 30 years have now passed since those six gunshots ended the lives of three people on Consolidated Road. Investigators say they have someone in mind for it. Someone Sheriff Mike Simpson called a good person of interest. As a matter of fact, police noted they had a good suspect within a week of the murders but said there was never enough evidence to prosecute him or anyone. Back in 1988, three months after the murder, Doug Crowell said it was frustrating not to have a motive. I think I'd almost rather have the why than the who, he told a reporter. The murders of Marker and Newsom seemed clear. They were killed to stop them from being witnesses. But what had set the whole thing off? Way back then, an investigator said he thought the case was solvable. But then he added, having a solution and being able to prove it are entirely two different things. That statement certainly seemed to have turned out to be prophetic. It amazes Becca Newcomb that no one in this small rural community has come forward with enough information to make an arrest in the murder of her sister, and the two men. If this was your brother, your sister, your child, your nephew, your niece, wouldn't you want to know? 
she said to Dayton Daily News for a story four years ago. It won't heal us. Nothing will make us whole, but part of us will rest lighter. Sheriff Simpson said he's pretty sure people other than the killer know what happened that night. Somebody knows, Simpson said. We need that information brought forward. In 2007, a woman who identified herself as the widow of Donnie Marker posted about her experience and her theories to a forum on a website called WebSleuth. I have no way of verifying her identity, of course, but I have little reason to doubt it. The woman, who posted under the name Widow, said Donnie was planning to move his family from Colorado to Ohio once he made enough money to get them a home. She said on the Friday night her husband was killed. She was sitting at home in Colorado when she was struck by an overwhelming sense of loss and loneliness for no apparent reason. Later, when she heard people had reported hearing the gunshots at 11.05 p.m., she realized it was the same time she had experienced that unaccounted-for emotional reaction. Widow had big problems with a police investigation into the crime. She said authorities never contacted her and never returned her calls to the sheriff's office. She was notified of her husband's murder from her husband's brother and never had any attention from investigators until after she had buried him. She said in the weeks and even the years that followed, people filled her ears with rumors of rampant political corruption throughout Preble County, that drugs may have been involved, that authorities determined who could deal and who couldn't in the county, and that Smelser may have run afoul of some unofficial traditions. She didn't know what to think but then learned some evidence had been destroyed and that citizens were forming a task force to try and get to the bottom of not only the consolidated road murders, but other strange and mysterious crimes. They called the effort the Preble County Citizens Task Force Against Corruption. The widow also linked to half a dozen websites that local citizens had launched trying to collect documents, witnesses, and evidence to pass on to the Department of Justice. I won't go into more detail here. I'll just say if you want to explore those accusations more, you can find it all over the web. However, if you know something that might help solve the murders of David Smelser, Melinda Newcomb, and Donnie Marker, call the Preble County Sheriff's Office at 937-456-6262. By the way, credit to much of the research in this story I need to give to the Dayton Daily News. There was a great piece in 2017 story by reporter Lou Grieco, and the newspaper did many features on this case over the years. So the cops and the prosecutor feel good about who did it? Uh, they don't just think they can get a conviction? Yeah, that's what it comes down to. You know, it makes you think. If you knew this case would go 30 to 35 years without being solved, if you could go back in time, would you go ahead and risk the case with circumstantial evidence? Well, I know you only get one crack at it. If you take something, someone to trial and they're found not guilty, you can't try it again, can you? No, you can't. 
still, you know, maybe there's something to be said for trying and at least making it public, you know, so the suspected killer is put on notice. But, you know, to be honest, those decisions are way above my pay grade, and I don't envy the people who have to make that decision. That's it for today, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. The shootouts are based out of Akron and formed when founding members Ryan Humbert and Brian Poston bonded over a mutual love of authentic country music. Ryan is lead vocals and acoustic guitar. Brian is electric and acoustic guitar. And their other band members are Ryan McDermott on bass, Dylan Gomez on drums, and Emily Bates with harmony vocals. The shootouts blend high energy, honky-tonk, and traditional country music mixed with touches of Americana and Western swing. And band members have shared the stage with the likes of Elvis Costello, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Chris Isaac, and more. Tonight, we're featuring a single they released just this year. Cue it up, Steve. You got it. Here's Rattlesnake Whiskey by The Shootouts. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Searching that higher ground for daddy's outfit on the outskirts of town. Shots rang out that chilly eve as the air hung thick with the smell of burning whiskey. So go ahead, baby, wipe your tears. We both know.
I was five It was the first day I ever felt alive History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.